Hebrews chapter 10. Now, as we do move into a new year, um, I kind of uh, was inspired to build upon last week's message, and uh, that being the incarnation. We looked at the incarnation. God was manifested in the flesh. Hallelujah. And in Christ, the Son, the eternal Son of God, incarnated in the flesh, and he dwelt a tabernacled amongst us, the presence of God. And so in that context, I want to look at what the Bible refers to, and as we'll consider a certain aspect in our text, but we're going to look at other aspects in the chapter as well. But I want to preach a message that I've entitled, As You See the Day Approaching. As You See the Day Approaching. And so... How true it is. It's another year. But you know what? It's another day and it's another year in which we are closer to that day. And uh, the scripture here is it speaks about, it's speaking about which day? The day of Christ, the day of the Lord, the day in which Christ shall return to the earth. And there are aspects obviously that are associated with that and the wrath of God being poured out and and whatever else, but the fact remains that, that we are talking about that day that it is approaching is the coming of our Lord and our Saviour. Amen. And so the world is on a trajectory and uh, it's moving closer and away from God and they think that they're going to reach a, a point where they can be happy without God and function without God, but it's not going to happen. The day that they reach uh, where they think that they've achieved anything is the day in which God's going to turn everything upside down, as he always does, and uh, because it's just the way God works, as we'll see in some texts uh, as we look at today. But we're talking about the incarnated Christ. You see, Christ is going to come back. Remember, when Christ came, he was born into the earth, and so... Uh, he, was a, he was a physical being and also he died and he was resurrected from the dead. And then the Bible talks about his ascension into heaven and he was seated at the right hand of the Father, right hand of God. And so you're talking about Christ. And so he will return and he will return physically, physically, okay, not spiritually, physically, and he's going to come back to the earth in his second coming as the same way he went in the same way he'll return in the clouds of heaven and he will take up the throne. Where else but in Jerusalem, amen? The city of God where God, where Jesus will take up the throne of David and he will rule and he will reign. And so we are seeing that day is approaching church. It's coming and it's going to happen. And so we are to be keeping that in mind. You see, it's keeping the end in mind that helps us to live for the present. It's keeping the end in mind that helps us prepare for the future. It's always keeping the end in mind. Why do I do what I do? Why am I, why is, uh, am, I, am I living the way that I live? Because we are not living for this world. We are in the world, but we're not of it. We are sojourners. We're pilgrims. We're passing through. We're looking to that city, amen, whose builder and maker is God. <clears throat> so we're always 
as Christians to live with the end in mind rather than get caught up in the temporal and the things of this world that can direct, that, um, um, uh, distract us. And so we're talking about the life that I live now in this flesh, in this body, is really important when it comes to eternity. How I live can affect and will affect what is to come. I mean, the Bible says that we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and there, there will be rewards. And so we want to live in a way, amen, that we're pleasing God. And we want to live in a way that, uh, that when we stand before him, that our works are not burned up. We haven't built on with straw and hay and stubble, but rather we have built our, our, our lives in this body in service to him. And when those things are tested by fire, they will stand, amen, and will be rewarded with those things that will relate to us in the kingdom that is to come. And so that needs to be our mindset this morning. And we need to... Uh, make sure and ensure that we're living holy and faithfully and completely for God now. Now. doesn't matter what age you are, whether you're young or old, now. Now is in the present. And so not later on, not one day, but now. And so this is really important for us as we live with eternity in mind. I was listening to a hymn just the other day and, uh, uh, or a song if you want to call it, but it's called uh, Jesus, All for Jesus. And it says, all I am and have and ever hope to be. And then it goes with these words, all of my ambitions, hopes and plans, I surrender these into your hands. You know, it really is. It's a, we're talking about my life is not my own. I've been bought at a price. And I must live to glorify God. I must live with eternity in mind. I must live. My life is now such that all my ambitions, all my hopes, all my plans are subjected to him. And it's not my will, but your will be done. And so this is the disposition that we constantly must have. And so as we head into a new year, it's always good to be reminded and refreshed in relation to these things before the Lord. And so let's read our text. And I want to look at a couple of things actually that we find within the chapter and we'll touch upon it. It won't be too exhaustive. There's a lot in here, but, um, but I want to just build on, on, on what we did last week in a certain sense. Verse 5 of chapter 10. Uh, Paul, uh, he's writing in verse 5 and he says, Therefore... Speaking of Christ, or God, therefore when he came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, sacrifice and offering... Burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. And he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Once for all. And every high or every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. 
But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, forever sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he has said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts. And I will write their, and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of, of these, there no longer is an offering for sin. Verse 19, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. The day is approaching. Now, there's so much in this chapter, but I've chosen verse 5 because it picks up where we started last week in terms of the incarnation of Christ, God manifested in the flesh. Because it says here, and we'll just look at it in its context, but it says, therefore, when he came into the world, when Christ came into the world, the Son of God born in human flesh, and the scripture says, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me, a body you have prepared you see, the, uh, the, the emphasis here is on the fact that a body has been prepared uh, and that Christ has become and born into this world as a, as a man. And in doing so, God has prepared a body. A body for what? A body, obviously, for sacrifice and for, for, for an offering for sin. But note here, the context on which he's speaking, it relates to the law of Moses and the sacrificial system that was set up and was operative within the Old Testament. When it says, sacrifice and offering, you did not desire. Uh, but, uh, and, in, and it goes on to say uh, later that, he had, that God took no pleasure in them. You see, because why is it that God took no pleasure in this sacrificial system in the ultimate sense? Because it was always only a shadow, as it says in verse 1 of chapter 10. It was never the substance. It was, never, it was always a, an indicator, a shadow, a type of that which was ultimately going to come. And so, again, God always had the end in mind with all of these things. And so there are a few reasons why God took no pleasure in, the, in the, the sacrifices and grew weary of them. One, because they could never take away sin. 
And so we're talking about the animals that were being killed constantly, daily, uh, twice daily, in the morning and evening sacrifices and, and all the other sacrifices that were associated with the law, which led to a consistent amount of animals being killed and blood being shed. And it was repetitive and it was constant. You know, and at the end of the day, although it covered sin, it never dealt with sin in, the, in, in a sense that it was once and for all. And so, so when you're talking about the body of Christ and God manifested in the flesh, you're again dealing with this issue of sin, which we will get to in a moment. But there was, as God took no pleasure in those offerings, ultimately, because ultimately they could never deal with sin. Look at verse, uh, let's go back. Verse 1, it says, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those approach perfect. It could never perfect anybody. With all the same sacrifices that they offered continually year by year. And in verse 2 it says, For then would they not have ceased to be offered? Obviously, if, they, if it could make someone perfect, then why would they need to offer it again? For the worshippers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Now notice that. The, 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 consist, the constant repetition of, of animal sacrifice never perfected anyone. They constantly had, uh, they were never free from the, the burden of sin and a consciousness of their own sins. And so uh, it, what it proved ultimately is it reminded them over and over and over and over that they were sinners and they could not approach God. They could not enter into the presence of God. And so imagine living in that way under that condition. And so that's the present circumstances. And then Jesus, uh, obviously being foreordained by God and, and prepared, he says, you have prepared a body for me. And so Christ is going to become obviously that ultimate sacrifice. But you see, there's another reason also, I, uh, I believe, uh, that um, even though this is the primary reason, but there's also another aspect when God took no pleasure in those sacrifices for sin and in terms of the relationship with his people Israel. And that was is that, uh, you know, like it says, that they drew near with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. And so they, were, they went through the, the mechanisms, the routine. They went through the external forms of religion in which they had to offer those sacrifices daily and, they, and their feasts and their uh, yearly sacrifices, the Day of Atonement and all of those things. They could go through the ritual and the routine and all the external forms of religion, of Judaism, but still there was something fundamentally wrong within their hearts. And so God wanted to deal with the issue of sin and he wanted to deal with the heart of man. And uh, in, in doing so, this is why it says in verse 16, if you look further down, this is the covenant, this is speaking of the new covenant, that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts and into their minds I will write them. And so we're talking about something that would shift 
rather than being an external form, but rather it would be now an inward life, an inward reality, and by which, amen, one would not desire to live according to some outward expectation or demand, but rather an inward desire and an inward motivation, an inward love that would motivate us because of, of, of again, as we'll see, what Christ has done for us. As the scripture says, to obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better. That's what God wants. He wants obedience from the heart. Not obedience because of a law. Not obedience because you have to. It's obedience because you want to. It's the laws written in your heart and in your minds and it's an inward motivator. It says, I love God. I want to do his will. I want to obey him. And God is always looking for obedience. Remember the story of Saul? He says, uh, you know, God says, go and kill the Amalekites. And, and then uh, Saul goes out and because of fear of the people and, other, and because of uh, to, you know, his own self-interest, he, he, he withholds uh, and doesn't kill all the, the animals as God had told him to. And he says, but I kept them so that I could, we could sacrifice to the Lord. And God goes, I'm not interested in your sacrifice. I, to obey is better than sacrifice. That's what God wants. He wants obedience. He doesn't want our sacrifices. Because when we say, oh, well, God, I'm, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. But when we are willfully disobeying God and willfully defiant and unsubmissive to his will and instruction, then um, sacrifice is something that God is not interested in. And so he wants our heart. He wants our love. He wants us, and he's going to put our law, his laws into our hearts and into our minds in which that would become a motivating force that we'll see through his spirit in us that would motivate us and empower us to live the life that we are required to live. Look at verse 7 of the text. It says, uh, obviously, verse 6, in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. Behold, I have come. Christ has come. And this is a direct quote from Psalm 40. And in there, it actually says, it's my delight to do your will. You see, when we look at Christ, we see something of an example of what God's wanting from us. And so Christ, uh, uh, he was submitted, he was loved, he was in communion, he was in fellowship, and were all of these things that were motivating him to please him. And so, again, it was a delight for Christ to do the will of God. And so, too, it is, should be for us. That will required perfect love. It required perfect obedience, as we heard, even to the death of the cross, because that's what the body was prepared for. Four. And so Christ came to live a life of complete love and obedience because that's what God was after. In verse 8, it says, previously saying, sacrifice and offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire nor had pleasure in them, which were offered according to the law. But verse 9, but this he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Now look at Jesus here because we're considering Christ first. Now Christ has come 
and his body has been prepared. And he says, I have come to do your will. And that will which we know was to offer himself as a sacrifice, as an offering for sin. And in doing so, he was to take, uh, it says here, he takes away the first that he may establish the second. What's it referring to here? It's referring to the first covenant. Or we refer to it as the old covenant, but it's the first covenant. It was the first, and so he was fulfilling the first covenant, and he was establishing a new covenant, or to establish the second. And now, by that will, through his death, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, notice those words, once for all. Because Christ's sacrifice is such in, in that uh, uh, in, in preparing a body, in God becoming a man, in dying for uh, having uh, uh, to bear, off, make his, off, his body as offering for sin and so forth, it's, this, this uh, sacrifice was complete. It was once and for all that the blood that Jesus would shed at Calvary and the cross that was foreordained before the foundation of the word was never to be repeated again. Why? Why? And as a result of that, there was no more necessity to sacrifice one more animal. There was no need for any shed blood of any animal to, be, uh, to happen ever, ever again because God now is doing away with the first covenant. It was only a shadow. The substance now is Christ. It is fulfilled through the body of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice. And it is once and for all. Amen. Once and for all, it stands. And so, <clears throat> Jesus fulfills the perfect will of God. Now, in verse 11, it says, And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. We just looked at that. Can never take away sins, though. But this, but look at this, verse 12. But this man, I love it. But this man. But this man. Uh, there's just something about those words. Amen. But this man. No, it doesn't say, but it doesn't say God, it says man. But this man with a capital M. Because this is a man, but just no, not just a man. Amen. It is, uh, uh, and so this is really, really important because um, we have been sanctified through that one offering that was for all, and so we, through the body, and we are set apart, and so here it is, but this man, verse 12, after he was offered, uh, uh, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. One sacrifice for sins forever, once and for all. Have you noticed how the scriptures refer to the man? Uh, there's an expression, and uh, you'll find that sometimes we read about Jesus Christ. And so when we refer to Jesus Christ, we refer to his, his, uh, his humanity. But you see, in the scripture, you'll find that there's this, the flip. If you read it, and it says, Christ Jesus. And the reason why it's the deliberate, it's deliberately set in that way, because when it speaks of Christ Jesus, it's speaking about the man, but in his glorified state, in his divinity, not just his humanity. 
Jesus Christ, the man, Christ Jesus, uh, uh, the, the divine, the Son of God. And that's why Paul the Apostle in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, he says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. Christ Jesus, not Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. And so this is all, what it's all about. He came into the world to save sinners. He offered his body once and for all. And those that are being saved, that word is sanctified or set apart, those that are coming to Christ, being born again, having their sins washed and, uh, and being forgiven, now we are sanctified and we are perfected forever by the blood. It's a position it's a, it's, it's, it, that we have. It's not something that we achieve. It's not something that we do. All we have to do, the Bible says, is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And as you believe on what Christ has done in as a substitute and for all that he has done, then you enter into that. You are born of the Spirit of God, born again, and you have now perfected because of what, what this man has done, Christ Jesus. But this man... You see, look at verse four. Um, oh, sorry, uh, verse twelve. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, notice it's forever, he sat down at the right hand of God. So when Jesus, in Book of Acts, remember he ascended on the cloud and they watched him as he just kind of disappeared, and and uh, and and the Bible says that he was seated at the right hand of God. So you have Christ. Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, a human body. He ascended in a, in, a, in a physical body, albeit a glorified body, but it was still a body. And that's why we have our hope, because we're saved in our soul, we're saved in our spirit, but we're still in this body of death, right? And where we are waiting for the fullness of our salvation, because we're going to be changed in a moment, and, and, and corruption will put on incorruption, because we too will one day receive uh, that new body. But here we're talking now about Christ. And it says here that he is seated at the right hand of God. And listen to what it says uh, in, uh, in verse 13. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. Now think about this for a moment. Because when you read that, it's, you have to understand it in its complete context because uh, although Jesus is in heaven and although Jesus rules from heaven and uh, is seated at the right hand of the Father, a sign of uh, power and authority and all of those things, you know when his enemies are going to become his footstool? When he returns to the earth and he sets himself up on the throne of David in which he will, uh, 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 when God's ultimate plan, where the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords will rule and reign from Jerusalem. And so it's in that context as well, because when, that's why in verse, remember verse 25, when you see the day approaching, that's the day we're talking about. That's the day in which his enemies will be destroyed. That's the day where his enemies will be subjected to him. That's the day in which all will bow before the King. Otherwise, I'll just be, be destroyed and be eternally damned. And so, Jesus Christ, 
And we're waiting for this time where his enemies are made his footstool. You see, that day is approaching. And that day is the second coming of Christ. That day is when the kingdom of God will be established on earth. Not beforehand. There's a lot of things going on in the world around us. And it's a false gospel. It's a false movement. It's a false uh, Christian Christianity in which they want to see the kingdom of God established now before Christ comes. You will never accomplish that. That is a lie. It's a deception. And it's a part of the overall uh, global deception that's going on in the world around us. We, we will only have peace on earth when the Prince of Peace comes. Amen. We'll only have the government uh, will be upon his shoulders when Jesus Christ comes. It will not be before the kingdom of God will not come beforehand. And so the kingdom of God being established on the earth is when Jesus physically returns to it. Turn with me to Psalm 2. I want to read it. And I know we're familiar with it, but I love to read it because, and, and just reflect upon it because I tell you, it just shows us that God is in control. It just shows us that God sits on the throne. It just shows us that ultimately all those enemies on the earth who think that they are in control, they have no idea of what they're dealing with. Let's read it in Psalm 2. It says, why, verse 1, why, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth, they set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. You see, this is, this is the constant disposition of the world in its hostility and its enmity to God. Thinking that the rulers of this world, those that are in charge, think that they have control, that they are going to rule, that they are going to dictate, somehow that they are going to be in charge. Then they plot their schemes and the nations they rage ultimately because they want to break off the shackles and the bonds of God's authority and they want to be the authority. Man wants to be in control. But look at verse 4. I love it. He who sits in the heavens shall what? Laugh. I love it. You know, people say, does God have a sense of humor? Absolutely he does. I was talking to Brother Peter just before church and, and we'll say how cold it's been, you know. And so it's like, yep, that's climate change, right? Sure is heating up. I mean, it's freezing. It's summer. <laughs> it's so cold. And so, you know, but yet um, mankind thinks that he has the scoop on everything. You know, if we're going to lower all of our gasoline emissions and we're going to, you know, just get rid of this and that, we're, gonna, we're, gonna ch we're actually going to change the temperature of the earth. Like, really? Like, it's, just think about that. It's stupid. It's insane. It is insanity that men would even contemplate that he can control the weather. The Bureau of Meteorology just released there on their app uh, a little, uh, when you sign in now, you've got to uh, tick the terms, the terms and conditions that where they're not responsible for their predictions because <laughs> they can't tell the weather what's happening tomorrow. 
But man seems to think, this year is an El Nino. You know, I read uh, about the farmers, you know, they're, they're suffering because of all the floods. And not only are they suffering as a result of the floods, they're suffering because the, the Bureau of Meteorology told them it was going to be, the climate was going to be this and that. And they, seek, they listen to the advice of that and they adjust their whole cattle and the way they run their farms, how much uh, cattle they have and so forth to accommodate in case that there's a, 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 a drought. And then all of a sudden, they've got that much water, they don't know what to do with it. And they're saying, they said that they suffered not as a result just of the rains and the floods that they've suffered. I was listening to a representative speak. He said, we've suffered because the Bureau of Meteorology, they, um, they got it 100% wrong. Really? Oh, does that surprise you? They got it 100% wrong. Whoever thought they were going to get it right? Oh, it is. And, 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 and that's why I, I'm being like this, because when it says, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh, you can either cry or laugh, because it's that stupid. And I laugh, because man actually thinks that if we do A, B, and C, that we're going to change the climate. Seriously. And so, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision, verse 4. Verse 5, then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet, verse 6, yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Hallelujah. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. There it is, the only begotten son. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. We put our trust in the Lord, amen? amen. Kiss the son. In other words, this, this, this psalm contains the first and second coming of Christ in that we deal with his birth and he's the only begotten and, and uh, that deals with his uh, redemption and the whole aspect of his suffering. But at the same time, it's talking about his wrath. And this relates to his second coming, when he physically will return to the earth and he will judge and destroy his enemies. And the rulers of this world, they don't know what is coming. So, we have the enemies of God being made his footstool, Christ. This is when he returns, when he sets up the kingdom of God and he takes up his throne. Hallelujah. Now let's move on to this in uh, this second aspect that I want to highlight. Obviously it says in verse 14, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So there it is. That's our position. We're perfected forever. But we're not perfect yet, right? 
Because as we heard today, he who has begun a good work in you will complete it or perfect it, is the word, until the day of Christ. And so God, we are positionally sanctified, positionally set apart, but now we're in the process of being sanctified, being changed and transformed and conformed to the image of his son. But here we're emphasizing this positional perfection, having been set apart. But you see, verse 16 when it speaks, or actually go back to verse 15 before we look at that. Go to verse 15. It says, um, but the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. The Holy Spirit also witnesses. And so take note of that because uh, the Holy Spirit is central when it comes to the work of, of God. You know, the Holy Spirit, you know, Jesus said, I will send you another and he will testify of me. And he will be the comforter or the advocate. He is the advocate of Christ. He takes of what is Christ and he gives it and declares it to us. And so the Spirit is consistently bearing witness. What does the Bible say? The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are what? The children of God. And so the Spirit is bearing witness and it gives us what? An assurance of salvation. Because we have been perfected forever. But you see, that's the whole thing. He sacrificed, dealt with sin once and for all. When you are found in him and you are born of the spirit, you are now perfected, set apart in him. It's a perfection that has, has been imputed to you. It's salvation, the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So let's go to verse 16. Where it says, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and in their minds I will write them. This is really, really important. I want to try and demonstrate this this morning because so many people see Christianity as a bunch of laws. You know, you have to do this, you have to do that and all the rest of it. And that is such a misrepresentation, a misunderstanding of, of, of the gospel and of the Christian life. But here there is a reference to laws. But God says, I will, in, in, the, in this covenant, in the new covenant, I will put my laws into their hearts. And in their minds, I will write them. And, so, uh, and, and, uh, and he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. And so now it's not a matter of breaking the law and being condemned and under condemnation and being judged and so forth, but rather we understand that we are, our sins and our lawless deeds have been forgiven. They are to be remembered no more. They're, the, they're under the blood. But now the law of God is being burned into our hearts, put into our hearts. And this becomes a motivating factor, the motivating force in serving the Lord because I want to live for Jesus, I want to do the will of God. Like Christ, it's a delight to do your will, O oh God. I've come. Now, my, in the same way Christ came in a body, my body now must be in submission and service to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, and we have this inward power, this inward motivation that has to do with the, that which is written in our hearts and that which is in our hearts. Who's in our hearts? Christ in us. The hope of glory. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. We are the temple of God. And this is really important. So it's in that context that we uh, is the foundation of our Christian living and our Christian life. You see, 
in, in, in the Old Testament, God's people outwardly appeased God's law by participating in the ordained sacrifices. But as I said, their hearts were far from him at times. And as we, as we know, the law in and of itself, you know, the Ten Commandments, the Bible says it can't justify anyone, it can't perfect anybody. So when we talk about writing the laws in our hearts, it's not about trying to achieve a, a, a state where we're going to somehow uh, appease God or somehow going to earn his favour or somehow um, we're going to uh, earn our salvation or earn some merit with God. No, no, the Bible talks about this. It's an inward, the new covenant has to do with a, not law, but love, a, the motivation of love, an inward desire to love and obey and to serve God, not in some legalistic and works-based um, motivation or some outward striving, but rather an inward motivation that's born of the Spirit of God, that uh, is bear, bears fruit to God, that says, Lord, I love you. We heard the words this morning. Why do we love him? Because he first loved us. That's the whole motivation of why we do what we do, of obedience and submission and walking in a way that's pleasing to him. Because he first loved us. Listen, turn with me to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. In Galatians 2, Paul the Apostle writes, and he, he says, we'll look at just verse 19. But he says, for I, for I, through the law, died to the law. You see, so again, this is not, we don't live unto the law. We live unto the Lord. And this is really a fundamental difference and principle of life because I through the law died to the law that I might now live to God and this is what uh, Mia was saying in Romans 6 when it says reckon yourselves dead indeed to sin and the way in which we live because now um, uh, the old man has been crucified Romans 6 talks about this we have been baptized into his death and so it talks about this present state of we are in Christ Jesus and now reckon yourselves to be dead and, and count yourself uh, and uh, to be dead indeed unto sin. But listen, for I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. In verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Now think about these words for a moment. I have been crucified with Christ, not only in the sense of, uh, of our sin. I, through the law, died to the law. Okay, so in other words, the law has been fulfilled in Christ Jesus. He has, he has accomplished and perfected our salvation. And the end of the, Christ is the end of the law unto righteousness in Romans 10, 4. And so now I'm found complete in him. And as a result of that now, I am dead to the law. I'm alive to God. I'm dead to sin. I'm alive to God. And in being alive to God, Christ lives in me. Now we're talking about not the law. We're talking about the life of Christ. Christ lives in me. And he says the, uh, that I might live to God. See, you, we must live our lives to God today. 
We must live our lives with an understanding that I have been crucified with Christ and that it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And so do you have that understanding as we go about our daily lives and as we live our lives and, and we have to all function, but do we have that critical understanding that it is no longer I who live? In other words, yes, there's the, the ego, there's the me and there's the I, but that is now subjected and is absorbed into Christ Jesus because Christ lives in me. That's why the Bible says in uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 6 that your body is not your own. Not even your body, let alone your whole life, but your body is not your own. For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body. So rather than present it to sin leading to sin, present it to God and let it lead lead and be glorified God. And so Christ lives in me. It's the life of God that is in me and must manifest itself through me. And it says here, the life of Um, uh, where is it, Uh, and the life which I now live in the flesh, in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so if Christ gave himself for me because he loved me, how much more should I give myself to him out of my love for him? We love him, John says, because he first loved us. And so the whole our motivation is, is, is love because he, loves, he loved me. He died for me. He saved me. And therefore now my life is to be put on. I, present, I, I, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, what? A living sacrifice to God. Why? And then it goes on to say, because this is wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. It's your spiritual act of worship to God. That it's, it's logical. If God died for me and gave his life for me, then I must give my life to him because it's his. He lives in me now. And the life I now live, it's saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? Lord, I will do your will, not my will. And this has to be the, the mindset and disposition of the Christian as he submitted to and obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. This is again talking about the fact that we are uh, made righteous through that once and for all sacrifice, not by living by law, which is what James is speaking about. Now, We're talking about a life-giving spirit that motivates, empowers, and uh, just quickens every aspect of our Christian life. The same spirit who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, Romans 8. And when you begin to contemplate and meditate and think upon these realities, and this is meat, this is the meat of God's word for the Christian. And as you understand that, you realise that... uh, um, uh, then it's, again, I, I must live for him. We don't live to the law. The Christian doesn't live to the law. He lives to the Lord through his spirit that is in us. The Bible says, for the law of the spirit 
of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law and sin and death. We don't live under some law-abiding, law-keeping motivation. We've been made free from the law of sin and death. We live by the principle of life, the principle or law of life which is in Christ Jesus. That life is liberating, that life is fulfilling, that life is satisfying. It's everything to you and I this morning. So the Jew lived to the law. The Christian lives to the Lord. So are we living in this way this morning, according to this rule, according to this law? Obeying God, living for the Lord, all for Jesus. Has you, have you ever come to a point in your Christian life where you've totally surrendered all to Jesus? Where you're willing to put everything and say, Lord, it's not my will, your will, whatever it is that you want me to do. And in that place of total surrender, of total submission, you've sought to hear God's voice say, this is what I want you to do. This is, how I, this is my will for your life. Have you done that? Because I tell you, that is important. It's critical. Reckon yourselves dead indeed to sin and alive to God in righteousness. And so you must come to a place. And I think that these types of times where we come to an end of, of a year and begin anew, we always are reflecting upon uh, life and especially spiritual life this morning. Now, I want to close with a f- just a few quick thoughts that come from our text. And so in, in um, Hebrews 10, it goes on to say, Therefore, in verse 19, Brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. You know, having been perfected, the Bible says now we are in right standing But not just right standing, we are in right relationship with God. And the Bible says that we can enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. And so we can come into his presence, uh, verse 20, a new and a living way that he consecrated for us through the veil. That veil was his flesh. That's why when Jesus died, that veil was torn in two. And what does it do? It says we can come into the presence of God, Christ in me, I in him. What a wonderful blessing. So we have our relationship with God. But then there's the last aspect that I want to emphasize, and that is our relationship with each other. And really, this kind of sets the tone for what I want to say as we head into the new year this this morning. Verse 24. It says, let us consider one another. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. And I think... That um, we, no one lives for themselves. This is the whole premise of, of, of the Christian life. This is why we, we have church and we come together as a church. This is why we fellowship as believers. Consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. And that's what we want to stir up amongst us. Uh, we want to stir up love and motivate ourselves to good works. And in verse 25, it says, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. You know, I always get concerned when I see Christians isolate themselves. You see, we are called to participate, not to isolate. And so Christianity is not something that is individualistic. It is, it is sure, it's individual in, that, in, a, in, a one, in only in one dimension. 
But then it's all outward. It's all about others. It's about considering one another. It's about coming together. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the manner of some, because there's always some that just don't put that emphasis. You know, and I'm not just talking about coming to church. I'm talking about in fellowship. I'm talking about Bible studies. I'm talking about coming together around the, in the Lord with one another in the word and all those aspects because that's how we are blessed. That's how we grow in the Lord. That's how we are sustained. We need each other. And so let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhort one another and listen and so much more as you see the day approaching. As we come closer to the end, and there's a lot that's going on in the world around us, you know where we're going to find our strength? In the Lord and in one another. And as the day approaches, as we're, as we're, as we're hurtling towards the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is to band us together. It's to force the pressures of the world that's going on in the world is to force us to come together. And to, and to assemble together, to exhort one another, to consider one another, to stir up love, and to build ourselves up one another in the faith. And there's so much more as you see the day approaching. So what I say to you is let's not neglect the assembling of ourselves. Don't put these things second. You know, when we start putting God second in our lives, then something's terribly wrong. Because God, God's kingdom, God's people, his church, his purpose is his primary to the Christian. And so let us go with this mindset. Let us go with this understanding this morning. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for the word this morning. Just these issues, and Lord, that we've just touched upon and considered. God, take them and quicken them to our own hearts and our own lives. And as an assembly, God, we're asking for your blessing. Lord, and as we seek God to fellowship and as we seek, Lord, to come together, as we seek to consider one another, not forsaking, but rather, God, uh, um, but becoming stronger and stronger in our relationships with one another and in our union with you and one another, I ask you to bless your people. In Jesus' name, amen.